I'm Devika Girish, I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I program talks for the New York Film Festival. And I'm really thrilled to welcome you all today to our very special Film Comment live talk, titled... Yay! Thank you, Elvis. <laughs> titled On the Critical Attitude. The title of the talk is inspired by a poem by Brett, which we will get into. Uh, which we wanted to use as a jumping off point to talk about the role of critique in the arts but beyond and all the different forms critique can take. So it could be film criticism, it could be filmmaking, it could be action, protest. Critique is, you know, a very multifaceted thing. And something that we'll dig into is what is the role of critique in society? Can critique be a work of art in itself or is it something separate? Is critique always something negative or is it maybe something really optimistic, you know, an optimistic attitude towards the world? So we'll get into all of that with our amazing panelists. But before I bring them on, I just want to say that there is one filmmaker we would definitely have had on this panel if he was here and if he was free right now, and that is Jafar Panahi. We're showing his film. We're showing his film, No Bears, in the festival. Uh, he's currently in prison serving a sentence that, and uh, you know, also suffering a ban on filmmaking, which he has circumvented for supposedly propaganda against the government. And he's a filmmaker who has deployed critique in really fearless and uh, incredible ways. So I just want to voice our support for him and for all the women in Iran who are currently uh, you know, putting their lives on the line for freedom. So. All right, so I'm going to bring uh, our panelists on. First of all, let me bring on my co-editor at Film Comment and co-moderator today, Clinton Crute. <laughs> and our special guests, the filmmakers, uh, whom I, they need no introduction. I'm going to start with Laura Poitras, the director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Elvis Mitchell, longtime film critic and director of Is That Black Enough for You? <laughs> Tiffany Shah, writer, filmmaker, director of What Rules the Invisible? Okay, so welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us. Do some reading here now. For yeah, us. we're going to do so some reading got... from the uh, from from this gigantic tome that I've toted around. I carry it with me at all times. Just we want to make sure you all know that we read. So. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be very strong to read correct, it seems. Okay, so we're going to start with this poem that was the inspiration for this talk. I just want, we just want to kind of quickly, it's a short one, don't worry. It's called On the Critical Attitude, uh, and it goes a little something like this. The critical attitude seems to many unfruitful. That is because in the body politic, they can achieve nothing with their critique. But what seems in this case an unfruitful attitude is simply a weak attitude. A critique with weapons can smash the state. The canalization of a river, the grafting of a fruit tree, the education of a person, the reconstruction of a state. These are all instances of a fruitful critique, and they are also instances of art. This is a, this is a kind of more recent translation, but uh, the, tr the translation that we had shared with everybody before the talk had a critique with arms can smash the state, which I think is kind of an introduces kind of an interesting ambiguity that we can maybe talk about a little bit. So funny you bring up Breck because I think I, mean, I think about the influence of Breck in something like Our Town, which is which is Brechtian in its way, right. and the idea of using structure as a way to criticize the mainstream, right. and to also bring attention to to what is marginal. And I think. This, for me, is an interesting group to be with because so much of documentary, maybe until 50 years ago, was about people in the center of the culture commenting on people who were marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so just, we're just talking about gays backstage. To switch that gauge, for me, is Brechtian because it becomes an act of subversion. By I mean, switching, you mean have the people on the margins making films about people yeah, power? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not even about people in power, but about ourselves. Okay. Mm. I mean, just that. 
right. bec- that becomes a, a pivot point where, you know, it's, you know, Godard says every edit is a political act. Right. And, and the idea that politics and art have, are always intersecting. We can't pretend, you know, all you do is follow Kanye West's Twitter stream and you know that that's constantly happening. But he's also somebody who recognizes filmmakers, which is why I brought that up. Um, not just to take shots at white, anyway. Um, but to say that there's this constant sort of interweaving and we, the brilliant work of these two people, dear God in heaven. Um, and I was talking to Tiffany before about the, the way the essays intersect with the way you use imagery. I mean, you're talking about that awareness of the gaze and what we can see in your film is that it, the, the subjects themselves subvert that. It goes from, they go from being subjects to becoming the cameras. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I just take oh, no, my job away from you. No, that's what, nobody's here to hear me talk, trust me. Nor me, trust me on that. No, I think, I think quite, the, quite the opposite. I think, but, uh, t- but what you're saying reminds me that, you know, Tiffany's film, uh, very much every edit is a political act every, because what it's doing is taking this archival footage and repurposing it in a way. I don't know, Tiffany, Tiffany do you, is that how you were approaching this project? Yeah, I was really interested in um, those, that, uh, that kind of footage existing between uh, specifically flipping it from like the 1930s up until like the late 1970s of Hong Kong. And then also, you know, that particular period of time is also pre the joint declaration. So it's before this moment when there's a lot of image making, especially like in the 80s and 90s um, after the joint declaration where Hong Kong, they, uh, you know, we knew that there was going to be a sort of handover in 1997. And I think there's a socio-political context for um, Hong Kong cinema being so you know, prolific at that time because of that artists essentially being really anxious about you know, immediately already having a kind of anticipatory nostalgia. Um, but then looking at these like travel log footage, like sort of through this touristic gaze you know, from this time, they're all amateur um, right. uh, uh, clips and they are owned by various like archives, but who owns these images of these people who like they would consent to have their images filmed in this way? Well, there's these great moments where you see the subjects kind of, and you freeze, I think, on one or two of them where the subjects look directly at the camera and almost sneer. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but it's really having to also pick those things out because the traveler doesn't see it and they're not filming that particular gaze, but it's off from the sort of corner of a frame. So it's about kind of pulling these things out. And I think for me, criticism sort of is a beginning. It kind of shows possibility. It shows uh, desire and conflict and, uh, and sort of the, a path. Um, and that is the entry point for me in terms of an artistic practice. You know, your film and actually all three of your films make use of montage in this powerful way. And montage has been talked about for decades, more than a century, as one of the more most politically potent aspects of filmmaking. Um, what I was struck by, and maybe Laura will, will start with you on this question, is in your filmmaking, including All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, there is a lot of attention to form, uh, to aesthetic choices. And I found All the Beauty and the Bloodshed really transportingly beautiful. But those choices also feel carefully calibrated toward conveying, you know, a a political idea and argument. And I'm curious about the role, for all three of you, uh, honestly, about the role or place of aesthetics in critique. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of like, we're, we're approaching the work as artists individually, but we're also approaching like sort of the context in which we make work and the sort of traditions where we're, you know, coming from. And, you know, I've been thinking about this question of, of critique and thinking about my work, which is, tends to be critique of power, maybe, you know, U.S. empire or something. But, and then I've also been like wondering like the limitations of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like the, the necessity that you have to critique these histories and these sort of power structures. But what is the, you know, what creates structural or political change and, and how, like, what is the, um, uh, and, and, and that also becomes a question of, of choices and, uh, and aesthetics, I guess. Um, I mean, with, I mean, two things I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, now it's almost 10 years since the, I, I was involved in the releasing the NSA documents. And I'm like, okay, what's changed? What hasn't changed? And what, if I, had, okay, if I could reset, 
what does it mean to sort of work within the established structures, like for instance, the journalistic structures? I mean, I think that for one, on one hand, it provided legitimacy and protection for the work so that we could do it out. But then what is it, does it also sort of, um, uh, in some, you know, unintended way support a status quo, you know? Mm. Um, and then with the, the film with about Nan and, and her fight against the Sackler family, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of choices because she talks about such personal, in a sense, um, you know, like one of the things she does in her work is to destigmatize and to shift the shame around, like a stigma that one might have around addiction or sex work and redirect it towards society. You know, like how do we redirect critiques so that it's not individualized, but they become structural critiques and that hopefully are not just, that give the, and that, and that the audience has some, you know, that it's not wrapped up neatly, right? that you're sort of like, oh, I saw a movie and now like I've had some political action. I mean, watching a movie is not a, I mean, you could say it's a political action. Or no, one, I think you definitely yeah. could say that. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, and then certainly, because gosh, all this stuff takes me back to Brecht because I was thinking about what the happy end does and that whole idea about destigmatizing the uh, the line between commerce and, and sexuality mm -hmm. and, and, and those questions it asks about aesthetics. I mean, do you offer up something that's beautiful uh, for people to regard just as an object, or do you want them to invite them into it? And and I mean, gosh, this is such a, a fascinating conversation. I wish I were awake for it. But um, I, I I think what's, what grabs me about this is I think certainly in your your film you're dealing with an aesthetic, and we can sort of we transport it through eras, seeing what the aesthetic of the fifties is like in terms of the framing, in terms of the way people regard themselves, in terms of the way the bodies move, in terms of the way. As we move on, they, I don't want to say actualize, but there is a, a sort of effrontery about being regarded by a camera. And you were just talking about ownership. I just think about what copyright was supposed to be, which was to protect artists, and now it's to protect corporations, which is what you go after in your film. So it's like this, this kind of constant circle. And in the middle of that, I think, is aesthetics, which sits as this thing that we all have to ask ourselves questions about. And for me, there in, in this doing this film, there was the aesthetic that as black viewers we bring to it because you'd be talking about the critique. And what is criticism except to ask what is not there? Mm. And is that intentional? Mm -hmm. And and how do we respond to that 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 absence? Do we impute ourselves into it? Do we draw inference from it? As a viewer of color, I can always tell you seeing most mainstream movies, there was a kind of an irony you brought to it. Um, and, and for example, you see horror movies, you go, well, there's no black people because we already left. We knew it was too dangerous <laughs> to be in this neighborhood. Why would we still be here? Uh, and, and also for me, and I try not to be too, too on a nose about it, but there is no horror in the movies more frightening than walking outside of your house and feeling like you're living on borrowed time. There's nothing in the movies that can supplant that. And, and, and um, this idea, too, of, of the way you're seen, which is so much about, I think about, you know, snow and, 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 and what you've done in your movies about, your subjects are always aware of the way they're seen and, and how they're going to respond to that. And that awareness in your work, you talk about the awareness. Like, again, we talked about the essays. Uh, and these beautiful essays about switching from being subject to awareness and what that does. And I think what I've tried to do is make a, a film about that in between. Um, because then when you take power, um, or you try to take power in the commercial movie establishment, and you show success, because my film is about from 68 to 78, black artists went from being disregarded to being really the engine that kept the movie business going. At one point, a studio head just said to me, the dirty little secret of black of movies in the 1970s in America is that black movies paid for them. Mm. So you think about Altman, Scorsese, all these people who were artists, often made movies that were enormous regard and changed movies, but were in financial failures. It was the black movies that sort of kept these things going. And, and the idea of, of momentum, which is what your movies are always about, that, okay, the, the movies always end with these, and I haven't seen the movie, I have to apologize. They end with the question for me, now what? Mm -hmm. And I always wonder how conscious that is for you, that, that they end with. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like I'm really against like wrapping things up, like that, 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 that a film 
should be pushing outside of its boundaries, right? That you shouldn't, that there's a real problem with a kind of, yeah, like that the, a neat tidying up of, you know, the experience, the film experience. Like, I, I think that this is, I mean, it's really dangerous ideologically, you know, to, yeah. Yeah, I actually want to go, I, um, I'm going to get into a little debate here, but, but I think uh, an earlier point, there is a kind of uh, futility about making political films. What is political about political Why films? Why do you say futility? I'm curious. Um, what is the material, what does it materially change in the world, the existence of a film? Some films might be able to change people's perception about things insofar as changing laws, potentially. But there's also a radical dispossession of subjects on film that's also happen mm -hmm. happening with cinema's kind of, uh, uh, when, we, when we think of the sort of surveillance practices of documentary filmmaking um, and the consent and the, the sort of contracts of consent and the lack of consent mm -hmm. and the things that also happen in the afterlives of films that incriminate people or um, you know, reduce people in certain ways that they have to live that kind of legacy of. So I, I hold a lot of ambivalence, I think, in terms of the political power of cinema to materially change the structures that we're often talking about. But that isn't to say that I'm a nihilist about it. It's more to say that I think that there's like a radical role of things like poetry and art. There's a radical futility in it for us to be able to talk about these things Often not necessarily with the point. <laughs> that's the that's the thing well, that the art point. can do. Yeah. This is what you have happens when you have uh, 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 people who are also critics of the panel. Uh, <laughs> we are we are uh, not needed. <laughs> uh, but just to oh know, oh oh, like, oh no 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 no. I'm gonna we are playing two roles though. We are having a step back. But Elvis, go ahead. No, just somebody, who, somebody who's allegedly practiced both of these disciplines. Um, I, I do think that there's a romance in saying futility, um, because as I can tell you, as a person of color, the that, that saying that that the, producing these acts uh, sort of inculcates passivity is not. I don't think that's true. Um, it can certainly be a hypnotic effect where you feel like the act of watching it is, is being political. That's not enough. Uh, and then that sometimes becomes, even in terms of criticism, well, I'm writing about this, I think, therefore, I am political. Mm. And, and um, also, too, because as criticism is sort of cousin to journalism, the, there's this ideal of being impartial or objective, which I think is a, a meaningless term. Uh, you know, like Godard also said, every time you make a cut, there's a point of view there. So there's nothing objective about making documentary. I often think that uh, criticism sort of tries to usurp the legitimacy of journalism. Ooh, you got to go with that. I can't, you can't <laughs> just leave that one dangling. No, I just, I, I found it interesting that you brought up, you know, it as a cousin of journalism. And it's something I think about a lot because I do have an education in journalism and reporting, but I work mostly as a critic now. And there is kind of this in-between space, I'm sure you know, Elvis, from your experience, that we sometimes occupy where we're held to certain journalistic standards, but not to others. And I think sometimes the, the place of journalism can be used as an alibi in criticism, even though the relationship with the world, I think, is very different from journalism. I mean, I almost see journalism as closer to filmmaking or documentary making where you are drawing from the world, from people, and then figuring out how to get their stories. You're dealing with real lives and how to get them out into the world. You have a contract with the people as a reporter. You have a contract with people that you're reporting on. And sometimes I think I, I can feel disillusioned by criticism a little bit because it lacks that material relationship with the world to me. The relationship is very fraught. I mean, what, you're, what, what Tiffany's saying. I mean, the, tr the the history of documentary. I mean, if you look at it on balance, I mean, it's mostly extractive in general, right? Not all, not all of it, but and so there is. So then, how do you position? Like, what is what does it mean to make to make work within that tradition that is based on you know extraction and and yeah. I mean, these are. I think some of the most important ethical questions that that for, for for documentary filmmakers and dealing with real you know people's lives and the real consequences. Um, and I think the uh, for me, 
what I what I do agree with you on is the sort of radical um, potential of authorship uh, to take authorship as a sort of taking up this sort of mantle, um, and that is uh, that that kind of agency is a different thing. I think what I talk about when I talk about futility is the relationship between what we show to audiences and the passivity of a spectatorship. Mm. That troubles me often in the context of showing political films. In what ways does this kind of passivity also kind of trouble me, haunt me? Right. <laughs> um, do you think also that uh, we t we've talked about journalism, but I think there's also like hi history, telling histories and telling kind of hist untold histories or telling history in a way that hasn't yet to be to told is another isn't is kind of an action in a way it is kind of a political it's another political act obviously but tell by telling those stories you create you know new narratives that people can uh, new ways for people to engage with history and i think that there's i don't know is that i think all three of you are kind of engaged in that in that activity but um elvis's film in particular is kind of obviously doing that so how does hist how does history and kind of being a historian in addition to being a journalist play into your work? I mean, it's a thing we start off talking about, and uh, where by virtue of not being a part of the the cycle of, of people who are writing or reporting on these stories, there's I think that that's automatically a change in that. I mean, we bring in to view, to bear a point of view that has maybe not been extant before. I'm not saying nobody said it, but it hasn't been right. voiced in this way. And that, I just, you know, that was such a provocative point you made. Uh, I keep thinking about that, because my hope is that in everything I've tried to do, that it makes somebody, it changes the way somebody thinks. Um, all I can try to do is try to bring my excitement about what it is and maybe that's why I tried to not be judgmental because I don't judge what excites me. I just report on it uh, through this film or the, the writing I've done. And by by doing that, I hope to make people like move them out of the passive to, I've always tried to include history in whatever I've done. So you write about a, a book or a movie or whatever, this and this and this have existed before and led us to this. It's, it's always been about that for me. And I, I think by maybe doing that and forcing people just out of their own particular bubbles and, and points of view, that they are engaged enough to want to to seek out other things and, and be active. I mean, I and so much of this is about baton passing, isn't it? I mean, I hate to, to use such a hackneyed phrase. I have a question for, for Tiffany. Like, can you say more about the sort of spectator and like the past, like we talk about sort of passive viewing, like do you feel it's like the, um, and, and examples against it, or if you could say more about it. Cause the way or that examples the cinema, that, that yeah, you feel yeah. are like, can it be broken, you know, can, like examples of films, do you feel like that the, the audience isn't put in a passive position? I almost feel like it becomes like a different setting <laughs> the cinema as a cinema in this way that becomes so passive. I mean, the one thing, just as you're asking that question, it came to mind that in 2019, during the protests in Hong Kong, there was this moment where there were public screenings, like 60 impromptu simultaneous screenings of Ukraine on fire um, around the city, just people projecting it on streets and watching it as an act of protest. I think that is that is a, a, a very counter example of that. Also, I mean, Solanas and Gitino and, you know, Hour of the Furnaces, you know, uh, the way that they were writing about spectatorship um, and the communal experience of cinema as itself a kind of direct involvement that has to, I mean, I'm, I haven't read it in a while, so I'm paraphrasing, but like something that has to be, I guess, positioned against an antagonist. Or, or needs to needs to have a position, a stance, you know, against the system, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's capitalism, you know, finding ways to engage with cinema in a communal set, setting that that always has that um, right. principle, and that it creates some kind of new public that's like a resistant public and and starts to articulate itself, and so and I think often you see these place these in places these instances in places of like. Uh, increased political pressure um, 
where these communities then gather around seeing and seeing also invites discourse and debate and things like that. And I think that is the most exciting thing about, about work, uh, about dealing with history, about dealing with the gaze and, and all of these questions that we're thinking about in relation to nonfiction. But you even mentioned that in one of your essays. So I say either you get dressed or you get out and do something. I mean, because as soon as you start showing people images, I was just thinking about this goes back to Brecht, the history of audiences and, you know, seeing theater in an amphitheater where people would bring their families and they would cook and they do all these communal things while they were watching uh, something take place on stage in front of them. I mean, that even goes back to, to Weimar, Germany, and the way people would throw stuff and the actors would respond to it. And I always find myself asking these questions uh, about that there's something reductive about the process of coming into a place like this and being orderly and watching the images mm -hmm. and then leaving. I mean, it's... And then just audience interaction... I mean, I grew up where audiences were rowdy. They talked back to movies. They talked to each other. Uh, and, and that, for me, as much as a critic as anything else, this idea that you can respond to something in real time, that's a thrilling thing to me. And I, I feel like, on the one hand, you do want to be able to hear what people are saying in the movie uh, or, or be able to sort of get lost in the, in the beauty of a moment. But as often as not, I mean, I think movies walk this, this because you set off so many things for me in what you were saying. There's something hypnotic about it, and, and there have been tests about how 24 frames per second incidentally can be an ideal rate to hypnotize people. Mm. So you just kind of get lost. And if you're watching something streaming, you're more likely to fall asleep than you are if you're watching film being projected. It's, it's a brain chemistry thing. And, and if you're, because guys, you set off so much for me. If your intent is to provoke with a medium that can possibly put people asleep, then what's happening here? Is sleep radical? <laughs> I, I, I would say yes. I have a, a kind of a basic question that a lot of this is getting at for me, which is all three of you have also worked with the text medium, you know, other mediums to, to convey your, your arguments, your messages, uh, your worldview. Why film? I mean, why would you choose the moving image over writing or any other medium? Like Elvis, I mean, you've, you've been writing. Oh, I tried to write this as a book. Nobody wanted it. It's as simple as that. It was turned up by every publisher in New York, I think some really? twice. I'm not, I wish I were kidding about this. Well, that's but very telling. I think so. So it's like, oh, well, I guess I'll make a movie out of it because that way nobody has to read it. So, I mean, do you think it's because movies sell and they are more easily digestible in so, today's world? Are you serious? You couldn't, that's insane. I wish I were making that. Anyway, how's everybody doing? It is hard to believe, yeah. <laughs> I buy that book. That's insane. I just, that's <laughs> wild. So I make copies for both of you. Um, here's the fascinating for me, and I can't speak for anybody else, and it gets back to this question about what is passivity, and what is, even the act of post-production becomes sort of playing to an audience. You're talking to your editor, your sound people, they're telling you what's working, what's not working. Um, and you're getting your hands on it. I mean, it's... For me, there's a difference between the solitary act, mm -hmm. or I can wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and just realize, oh, there's something I didn't say, or I need to rewrite this passage. Right? I have to read this one more time. Uh, and, and, and I love that idea of getting your hands on it. And for me, and I just... Be, I mean, text still feels like the last bespoke medium, mm. uh, and I like that about it, and because there's something reiterative the, the, about making, going through the steps it takes to make a movie, whereas for me, text is almost completely iterative in that way. You do it and it goes out. Mm. Laura, what do you, I mean, I think... I, I'm not a writer, so I, I, it's, it's not one I, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a writer. You're but but have you, have you... Thought about the, not even necessarily in your, not that you would necessarily choose to write these stories, but have you thought of how they interact with those stories being told by other people through other mediums? I mean, what do you feel that your filmmaking adds to that? I mean, for me, like film is a medium where I can express myself, you know, about my thoughts about the world or trying to, to engage with it. So it's sort of, that's just... I don't know. It's been something I've been doing for so long, and I, 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 I 
love reading, you know, the, the work of the other panelist or Brecht, but it, I don't feel that this is, you know, in a way like I, for me personally, I feel like if words fail me. So, you know, in, in a way that images don't. I love that words fail me in the way that images don't. And it's also why I make films because it could take me forever trying to explain what happens in two frames you know mm. and uh and then also i think every medium is incomplete in some ways and that's why i have an, I have an experimental practice because it's all about the contingency of failing <laughs> and uh <laughs> needing that failure to constantly be you know close to feel like i'm taking any kind of risk what defines failure for you though i'm curious you just said uh maybe a misinterpretation um something appearing too boring or um over someone, you know, just uh, misses them entirely, the meaning doesn't convey. So that's the failure thing. And that's also the solitary practice of art making. It's like, you know, you're in this thing and then you, but once you bring it out into the world, how are other people going to see it? And sometimes that becomes even more generative than you anticipated. And then sometimes, yeah, the failure. <laughs> Yeah, I keep I, thinking of this single image from your film, Laura, as you guys are saying that of the the apartment, this exterior shot of the apartment with like a sunset, and it, it repeats throughout the film. Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it's just some, somehow that like sums up something about your film that is just very powerful that words cannot really touch. Um, right, in, in a way that's sort of some oftentimes a transition from the past to the present. Right, so right. it's this kind of fulcrum point. Yeah. in the film but I, I just sorry not to not to cut you please, off but please. I was thinking about David Wanarovich. I mean I've been thinking a lot about him he's he's in the film and he has this you know he writes and, and talked a lot about the pre-invented existence or pre-invented world that we kind of enter into and sort of rejection of it and and I think this complete rejection of it and there's a there's you know when I think one of the most moving things is he says in this um essay he wrote for Day Without Art, where he says, you know, like he's experiencing something akin to rage and around AIDS and that, you know, that everyone's perfecting their rituals of death rather than a relatively, you know, life affirming like ritual of like yelling in the streets. And, you know, this, there's just, um, I don't know, I think he contributes like his, his body of work of just saying, okay, I'm not going to accept, you know, not just aesthetically this, the, the rules of the game, but like you know what are the social rules of the game or what are the art world rules of the game and and just and that's what i think like my question like the, the necessity of critique of yes but also what are the limitations of it if it's always in dialogue with some kind of pre-invented world mm. but doesn't it, i mean isn't it always i mean at a certain point you can you can sort of I mean, Dean Brecht even talks about this reduce yourself to to inaction by yeah. By being having too much celebration about this, and, and and the by forcing yourself just to act, be it to write or to to make this thing, um, by virtue of doing that, you're there's an ex expenditure of energy. Let's think of but again, with, um, that's stuff that David wrote about, and you can see there's like this sort of balance, not balance, but this sort of wrestling between anxiety and rage, yeah. and 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 I was just remembering that feeling you feel almost feel it shaking as you're looking at it and and that power that creation just has because you're talking about failure i just think the act of finishing this thing um as incomplete as it might feel to you provokes somebody i mean and and, and sometimes this is the one thing i've learned through practicing criticism i'd like to ask you guys about this too it forces you to answer the questions you didn't know you had because most people will say, I love this, or I hated it, or I was bored by it. And oftentimes when saying they're hating it, they don't understand it. It's done something that they've never felt before. They've been provoked in a way by it. Or they were bored by it. it. It did something that they couldn't quite get into. And rather than engage, they just checked out. I mean, that's, to me, the exciting part about criticism, mm -hmm. is trying to winnow these things down and, and you, what you do in your essays to reduce that feeling into, and sometimes it's obviously too reductive because nobody's going to want to read 4,000 words on anything I've written, but just trying to find a way to frame it. it is an, that, that's the kind of ex creation mm -hmm. excitement to me about criticism that I think, I think is undervalued. Um, kind of responding to what you were saying, Laura, I, I think that's very interesting, what the idea you brought up of 
critique is necessary, but if it's always in dialogue with the status quo, with the existing world, sort of, it, that's what I, I thought you were getting at. And it's something I've thought about a lot, uh, especially, you know, when there were protests um, in 2020 and people were calling for abolition of the police and, you know, and basically a change of the, of the status quo. And the question that often comes up in response to these kinds of positions is, okay, but what else? So how do you want society to be? Have you, fi have you figured out an alternative system? And um, it's something I grapple with a lot, but I do wonder if it is enough to say I refuse the present, even if you don't know what future you want. It's enough to refuse the present because that creates the space right. to think of something else. And I don't know. I, I, I wonder if that refusal is enough. As, a vacuum as must be filled, right? Sorry? A vacuum must be filled. So if you, if you, mm. if you push something out of the way, like you're creating space for it's gen, It's a generative act, as we've kind of yeah. talked about at the beginning. I think that is also what I mean when I use words like futility and um, failure. Actually, maybe I don't mean them in such a sort of harsh and negative way. I actually see a lot of radical potential in it because it's just sort of this, it invites and it illuminates like sort of endless longing for something else. And I think that's what you're talking about, Devika, in terms of uh, protest also. What, uh, what do political objectives amount to? Can they be distilled for a whole movement of people into one phrase? Um, and I think that ambivalence is also the, um, uh, going back to the question about history, it's what is the sort of standardized um, narrative of history? What and who standardizes it? Um, and in the process of doing it, as we live through the present and go through the eye of that process, I think as artists, I, I feel that there is this radical potential of authorship to unsettle that, that process as it is moving. And that is the role of criticism. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So Elvis, something that I think that this is a, this kind of comes back to something you were talking about. You, you hinted at it earlier, but in your film, you talk about how your grandmother would take you to movies or, or and wouldn't let you watch. At one point you talk about how she wouldn't let you watch um, Andy Griffith's show because she said, you know, there are no black people in this town. Like that makes you wonder like where, where'd they go? No, she, I think and she said, is, I love this line. She said, there's no black people in this town. What do you think happened to right, them? Right, right. I, I just love that. Yeah. And so I think what this brings up, though, is a question of like this criticism as just a as an everyday activity, something that the way a way that we just move through the world with a, with a questioning these things, you know, questioning these stories. Because Andrew Griffith tells us a story about the South and that era, and I think that you know these are all things that your film kind of pokes at a little bit. I also, uh, Elvis, just to build on that, I in your press notes, I thought it was very interesting. You know, you said that this was like one of your early examples of criticism, right? Your grandmother saying that she was not in what we would consider an erudite woman trained in, in film or TV critique. And I think, you know, what I'm interested in, in what Clint is asking is also critique and criticism are sometimes made out to be these learned practices, elitist even, you know, it's always what you hear is critique is not for the masses. Somehow there's this, there's, there's this way in which it's framed. And I thought that this detail was very interesting in your film, you know, you, how lived experience can, is enough to make you a critic, to make you aware of what's missing from the frame. Oh yeah, that thing we were talking about is, yeah, these things really are just on now, aren't they? Um, the thing we were talking about earlier, that, that idea of criticism is to talk about what is not there. And and that was probably, not probably, the first profound idea or example I had of criticism being exercised in real time and made me think that there would be a place for somebody like me 
growing up because I never read that kind of thing. I never saw that kind of thing, that perspective, that point of view being taken. And it was about something that was patently absurd, which is, you know, my grandmother lived in a town that was a 15-minute walk from Faulkner's house. You know, this is the house that guy won that prize. Okay. <laughs> okay, she, she knew that, and she probably she only saw a handful of movies in her life because, as I say in the film, she was so terrified by seeing Dracula. And she was old enough to. She was at the point where she saw this. It's interesting. It was one of the first movies she saw, and she realized her dreams were changed by it. And I've just, to have lost that ability to t see a movie or see something and to realize that it changed the way you, your inner life worked. And so she was wary of, of that kind of pop culture in a way that I wasn't, but I grew up in the midst of it. And to just ask that kind of question taught me to think. What made me think, and again, this is maybe you, yeah, your definition of failure is just putting something out there. Maybe it's not everything you want it to be, but it provokes. And yeah, that's what happened there. And so everything I've done in my life probably has been one way or another uh, an outgrowth of that, of asking that question what is not there? Why is it not there? Oh, Phyllis, you're wasting your time watching this stuff. You can never make a living at it. And she wasn't wrong. But um, <laughs> she would say just this, all this sort of common sense thing that, and, and it was also to get at the idea of how terrifying this was to be somebody who was presumably marginalized, to not see your experience reflected. I mean, you know, it was, and Sam Jackson talks about going to movies and seeing Buckwheat with white people. He said, I grew up in a little town. I didn't know any black people who knew white people. So I want to be Buckwheat just so I could have that experience. And, and having to cling to, it's the equivalent of having to use a, a cactus as a life raft. <laughs> and, and I don't know where that came from. I apologize. But it's, it's, it's but it's also, it's, Again, I can't stop thinking about what the point you you be posited, um, and, and there can be this multiplicity of things. I mean, it's not, and then it forces us to redefine or maybe recontextualize what failure is. Um, and I guess part of the reason I wanted to make this film, or what I try to do, what I do still, because there's still not many people like me who do this, given the shape and 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 and. And the push that black culture is given to the mainstream. You see somebody on Fox say 24-7, they don't realize they're quoting Tone Loke, but it's right out of hip-hop culture. And so even they're like using the, their hateful messages of being passed along through hip-hop. I mean, the, 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 the effect that black culture has had on the mainstream still is not given the attention, given its due. And, and it's what I'm trying to do with this thing. Yeah, and I think it's really beautifully done. Uh, you know, just to, as I, that's, I'm offering my criticism. If you just accept your present. <laughs> I mean, thank you. Well, it opens up a space for somebody else to step in and say what they think. Well, I, I wanted to ask, a, we're, we, we're going to switch over to audience cues in a bit, but I think Clint and I had a, a couple more things we wanted to ask. So one is something that comes, comes up a lot in these conversations, and I want to ask you all, is about critique within institutions. Uh, and Laura, you know, you're telling Nan's story. Nan is someone who is a part of many institutions and then decided to use her position within those institutions to, to you know, make them reckon with their uh, complicity, you know, in, in the opioid epidemic. But kind of broadening it out from there, how possible do you think is it to critique a system that you are also in some way a part of, you know, all of you make films, have made films like, um, which are... In my are, case, I've made film. <laughs> but, you know, your film, Elvis, your film also is like, in many ways, a critique of the film industry and Hollywood's treatment of and exploitation of black audiences, black actors, but you all also have had to participate in those institutions to get your work out there to people. So I want to know how you reconcile that Right, okay. I mean, there are contradictions. And we only have three minutes left, so you're going to have to really... 
Um, no, I mean, so the the film about Nan, um, so it's an organ, her organization, which she, which she created called Pain, was to hold the Sackler count. Uh, Sackler family accountable for the role in the in the overdose crisis, and they did that in a, in a few different ways. Well, and and Nan is you know is is in the permanent collection of all these museums, and she knew that if she was walking into protest in the museum, that that there would be attention because it was somebody within the institution that was you know was walking in and causing um, or engaging in the in direct action. So she knew that, and she. And you know, strategically, she wanted to leverage her power in that way. Um, but the pain also, like they always had a parallel um, set of goals, which is around harm reduction, destigmatizing issues around drug use and you know addiction. So that it wasn't always just in elite cultural spaces that they were trying to have an impact. They were also trying to leverage what they could in in partnerships with organizations that were doing you know like trying to keep people alive. I mean, Nan says that many times in the film, like the goal is to keep people alive, that people are dying, that this, that, that, and to redirect the shame uh, uh, from addiction um, to, towards like toxic philanthropy and the fact that there shouldn't be, you know, families should not be allowed to exchange their money for tax write-offs and naming rights when that money comes from, you know, truly blood money, like the definition of blood money. And so, but yes, it's also, you know, this is, you know, somebody working within the institution, you know, somebody who shows her work in institutions also critiquing them. And I don't know, I mean, I think it's really important. And I think that when you look at the failure of uh, our political systems and uh, judicial systems to tackle these issues, like, you know, all we do is put people in jail. This is what we do in this country rather than sort of, and we don't put the billionaires in jail who are, are causing the kind of suffering. So when so then the battlefield then is a cultural space and that becomes like a place where you actually can maybe achieve something and I think that that's something that Nan was able to do. Is it limited? Of course it's limited and she would be the first to say it. But is it also like is it an important battlefield? Yeah, I would say it is. Um, I actually want to return that question to programmers and curators of these institutions of which they are also part of the process of compromising artists and the works to sap them of politics through this institutional compromise. It's not just us who are agents that are, you know, once the work is done, it also extends out of us. We die. They are managed. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I, think, I think curators and programmers and critics are also complicit in this process of, um, and, that, and that is the trouble of, of political films and political art when it lives on and the, the afterlives of these things. But it is not the artist's sole responsibility to bear that compromise. And I think that is, for me, the weird frustration of like, oh, so what do you do? You show these films in New York Film Festival. And it's like, yeah, it, it's part of a whole selection process. It's <laughs> that I am not, uh, I am a certain kind of agent. Um, It's interesting, though, that uh, Nan's action, uh, Nan, the, the, the change that she makes is through political action, not through her art in the film, through pain. Like, they go and they do die-ins. So she's not criticizing, it's not institutional critique in the traditional you know, art world sense. So it's interesting that, to think about how what she's doing is not art, and it's action, right? I mean, I don't speak for Nan. I mean, okay, she yeah, might. Sure. Uh, yeah. In, in, yeah. In terms of like the terms that we've laid out here, yeah. anyway. She'll be here at seven p.m. for her own yeah. talk. We can she can answer that question. That. I won't. I won't be there though. So I'll be running. Um, I think it's time for Go the ahead. final question. Wanna, oh, like, the final you, question. You know the final question. It's on the second. Okay, page. this is, I guess, a more fun one. <laughs> uh, it's time for it's time for you to tell us what you think of us. No, it's, it's uh, we just wanted to ask, like, as filmmakers, and Elvis, you can kind of play both sides here, uh, what, is your, what is your relationship with critics? <laughs> what, do you, what do you... I love them. I hate them. I love yeah, them. exactly. What, what, is their role, what, is, what is their optimal role, I guess, is a better way of framing this. What is, the, for, for you as artists, what is the optimal role of the critic, of the film critic, of the cultural critic? And it has to be. Again, we have even less time now. Okay. Uh, 
listen, I'm here because of criticism. Um, because my grandma. We love to hear that. Yeah, and, and and but you also think about Godard, and then the generation of artists who came out of criticism. I would append that to Marvin Gaye and and and, and Curtis Mayfield, who became cultural critics. Uh, and create art simultaneously. Mm. I mean, I think that these things can not only coexist, but inform each other. I started in film theory, not as a filmmaker. Um, and that's sort of my pathway into this. And then also even uh, recently writing uh, Phantasms of Descent, that piece, I almost felt like I was, uh, as a filmmaker slash artist, I was like live action role playing as a critic. <laughs> But you do that constantly, Dude. though. I mean, yeah, your yeah. work is... I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. A hundred percent. I mean, that's that's who you are. I mean, I, I don't presume... I wasn't going to say anything to speak to you, but no. I feel like those things for you not only coexist, but push at each other. And I love that tension that... that Because there's not second-guessing in it, which is what we presume. But in fact, there is this exchange, this exchange that you're having with yourself as, as an artist. It's almost reflex versus thought. Mm. Yeah, and that's why I love criticism, and I feel like that's what you just did right there. <laughs> it helped me kind of see my practice in a way that I don't, I wouldn't, I couldn't see in this first person. Um, once the, I mean, maybe not framed in that like clear, vivid way, right? Because I'm just, I'm just in my little termite <laughs> mode, <laughs> you know. Um. Try to think what I can contribute. I mean, I will maybe. Uh, I don't. It's not. Some, it's not a question I think about that much. But I would say that there is a question of the f people who are film critics. Do they understand documentary filmmaking? I guess is like one of my questions. And I'm thinking particularly of the recent example of Jihad Rehab, mm. which has become. Uh, you know. Uh, which has been rightfully criticized for the failing of the filmmaker in terms of some certain facts, which was well reviewed, right. but it was then ex re revealed that there were some serious factual problems with the film. For instance, the participants who were being filmed were labeled as terrorists. They just basically took the U.S. government's sort of rap sheet, you know, so you, as you meet somebody, you're, and now it's sort of being framed as a cancel culture, which is really a false representation of the critique that's been leveled against this film. The critique was the danger that was caught, you know, that, that, that it was questions of consent, the incarcerated people who've been in, in Guantanamo and then were sent to Saudi Arabia, which is not a free place, and then the risk to them, and then f positioning people as de facto terrorists in a context where, you know, the U.S. government just puts that label, and you can't just accept that at, at face value. They're, they're pre-trial detainees, and, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean... Anyone who's sent to Guantanamo, I mean, this, it's such a corrupt, bankrupt, you know, process. It's, it's completely extrajudicial and illegal, everything at Guantanamo. And so, but now the conversation is about, has, was this a cancel culture? Right. And this is a completely Based on this New mistake. York Times and, article. And, right, we, sh and we shouldn't, profile. you know, and I'm thinking like there's um, a, a parallel example, which is um, Catherine Bigelow's film Zero Dark Thirty, which was also mm. well-reviewed. And then... And then later critiqued for being for misrepresenting the the efficacy of torture and and its relationship to the CIA. And so in that case, there was and and people like Alex Gibney, who is a personal friend of mine, you know, was was very critical of Bigelow's film because it was swallowing basically CIA talking points. And so. Uh, you know, it puts this kind of like that that film critics, you know, I don't expect them to actually be investigative journalists, but when you're only sort of taking the text at face value, it, it does, and particularly with documentaries where the stakes are so high, right. it's a very problematic. So that's a long So you answer. say bad. Okay, so we've got one for bad. Which, which, which says that the FBI were responsible right. for the Civil Rights Act of 1965 and basically supplant what all the Civil Rights Act on the ground were doing. This is a film, and this is, oh my God, there's some of these films that are well-reviewed that are, which critics aren't even asking questions about the social context. So there are dangers in that too, I, I think. And, and it's, it's one of the rigors I try to apply to myself. It's the issue of only having so, many, so much time. But every few years, there's a movie like this. Uh, that, and these movies often go on to be Oscar nominees and Oscar winners. I mean, top of what Oliver Stone did in Scarface, for God's sake. I mean, there's so many of these cases. And that, or Midnight Express, which because it was expedient to mm -hmm. turn Turkey into a villain, 
because of U.S. politics. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kind of, I think, I'll say to everybody, good night. Yeah, yeah. It kind of confirmed, well, it kind of brings us full circle a little bit because I think you were talking earlier about how um, you decide whether or not something is good or bad and you either re- you'd reject it and you might, might not understand why you're rejecting it. In this case, I think there's a lot of acceptance of things that confirm our prior, or one's prior, uh, or, you know, the world's prior understanding of a, of a given situation. But it also reflects, I think, Laura, your point is really important, which is that the role of a film critic, is, as I see it, as we see it, is not just to respond to a text, but to also respond to its making, you know, mm-hmm. the context of its making, the relationships that it has forged with the people in the film. And so I think that is a good note for film criticism, um, because film is, as we've talked, discussed throughout this discussion, it is not a solitary act. It is not something that emerges from someone's mind and goes into the, you know, it's a collective material commercial process. Um, I think on that note, do we have time for questions? One or two? Yeah, let's... We're out of time. But can we, can we take a couple questions? Okay. <laughs> Just, We've got the uh, okay from... From our, there, so. from our theater staff, we're very patient and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, does anybody have it uh, right here? Sir? Yeah, I have a question. Can you wait for the mic so we can get it recorded? Thanks. Yeah. I have a question that kind of ties into what you're saying about futile. And then, you know, with, with you know, me as a military veteran, um, you know, we've been battling with Pentagon, how they poisoned our water and admitted it. But... It's funny, you know, I testified in front of Congress with Mark Ruffalo who decided, he said, well, we shouldn't do a documentary because it won't be effective, we'll do a movie. But then I find that, as you probably know, Republican, Democrat, one thing that all people critique and agree with is that you can't, you can't fight the Pentagon. They're just too powerful, they're too strong, you know, EPA, or you can't do anything. So... Are there just certain subjects where, like, maybe because of funding that we should just use our iPhones and just film and just and just be like, you know what, this is this is every all the critics agree this is a powerful entity. Let's let's just not mess with them. There's just something in this country where to you know like they'll they'll do with the Pentagon torture outside the country, but nobody wants to deal with the fact of dealing with how they've, you know, poisoned Americans and soldiers while we're in war. And, and the Pentagon admits that they did it. It's not even like, you know, then when I say, okay, well, this is just like Breonna Taylor, because but they entered through this faucet and not the front door. They'd be like, oh, no, but you don't want to accept black people. So I'm wondering, do you feel that there are just certain subjects that the criticism will and the mm-hmm. risks are just too high? And so, you know, we just need to go with our iPhones and hope it goes viral, and that's, that's the best thing we can do. I would always say you should make something on your own. If you can do it, please, don't wait. There's one thing I've, I've sort of learned. It took me 23 years to get here to make this film. Don't ask for permission. If you have a way and means, and the great thing about having an iPhone now, you can make it the way you want to make it and get out there the way you want to get it out there. You have that power now. You just said that. And, and this thing you were talking about generational. You know, one generation of people will see it one way, and then five years later, it'll be seen another way. But it will exist. That's why I say, if you get it out there, that, that, for me, that's the important thing. And, and you can wrestle with failure, and I'm sure you, you can wrestle with the ideal of failure. But just getting it done. So please, you have a point of view that nobody else here in this room has. You have a perspective. You've been on, literally on the ground with this stuff. And it's in your bloodstream now. So if you, if you want to say it, you should by all means do it. And I feel like the legacy of like political filmmaking and like when people were writing in the seventies about like the democratization of the medium, like that, you know, uh, who gets to be an author now? Like we all have cameras on us (laughs) that we could make these films. We could shoot them in 4k. Um, and I think that is like my first film was made on an iPhone also, uh, in that same way, because like when you're filming in these places, like, and, alongside people who might feel uncomfortable otherwise with like more professional gear, might be intimidated, might actually be fearful of you using that around them and uh, not trusting you. An iPhone kind of, or, you know, a phone or whatever just kind of disappears because we we're all using it. 
And so I think that there is that you can kind of break that barrier a little bit too. And I think that's the exciting thing about using that and like what's available to us as technologies, even though they're so fraught by surveillance and all of these issues that when we do circulate them. Yeah. And yeah, I, right. I, exactly. I agree totally. And then I'm going to quote David Wanarovich, who says, you can never rely on the mass media to reflect us, our needs, or our states of mind. I don't know if you know the film Psycho-Symbiotaxiplasm, uh, but you know that's an instance of a black filmmaker. This guy would come up as an actor in the 30s and 40s, this incredible figure, it's African-American, William Greaves, who then went on to host the Black Forum on PBS, who then said, I'm going to make a film, but I can't just make a movie, some kind of storytelling, so I'm going to make a movie about, I'm going to subvert what movies are supposed to do, and my role as a black creator in it, but also the way people deal with sexuality, and this was a film that existed almost as like a rumor forever. You say, I mean, I thought I'd seen a lot of stuff, and I couldn't find this movie. And I finally got lucky enough to sit next to a friend of mine and said, oh, I know Bill Greaves. I mean, so plain this guy. Why don't we have him come over to your house? And so I made barbecue, and he <laughs> drags out these two cassettes, and he shows me symbiotic cycle taxi plasma. But because he made it, it exists. You make it, it exists. Please go make it. And now I think you can stream it on Criterion, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. So if you make it, yeah, you never know. We'll take uh, one more. We one more question, more. yeah. Thank you. Um, this question is for Laura. Um, I think that, okay, <laughs> there's like a couple of, Maybe there's a couple parts to the question, but I wonder, like, who is the Nan film for? Who's the audience? Because, like, watching, like, how you guys were talking about, like, is watching a movie, like, pol like a political gesture? Um, is that enough? What is enough? Obviously, it's important that this movie was made, but I wonder, like, who's the audience? Um, and talking about how you were saying about like participating in the same institutions that we're critiquing just to be real it's $80 to watch your movie at the film festival so I wonder who's it for um, I hope we can do one other question I mean I'm going to answer it and I respect like um, the the question I mean I hope it's I mean, and I don't set the ticket prices at New York Film Festival, just to say. That's on but, us. <laughs> um, you know, I hope it reaches people who feel that they, that, I don't know, I think it's for actually many people. Like, there are people who are engaged or have been affected by many of the things that Nan talks about in her film. If that's art making, if that's being queer, if that's having gone through AIDS, if that's um, having dealt with the overdose crisis, if that's being an artist, or if that's being somebody in a cultural institution maybe needs to learn something. I think it's for all those. But maybe we could, I, I just feel like it's maybe not, we should go back to sort of one bigger question that like yeah. talks about critique, And but I appreciate that. And I, I also just add that in terms of you know, I think that's a valid point to think about how festival access works and in, in in terms of transmitting critique. But I also do want to note that this is just the first stop in the film's journey. You know, a festival is just where it premieres. It's going to have a theatrical release, streaming, probably a streaming circulation. So it is going to read a wide, reach a wider audience. And, you know, the festival screening is not the only way that people can watch but it. But it's a relevant question in this context. Yeah. I mean, so I, I actually think it's, I, when I learned the ticket price, I was also surprised. Somebody said, whoa. And I was like, I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that before I saw it go on yeah. sale. So. But yeah, let's take, let's take one more question. Well, hello. Thank you so much for uh, spending your time coming here. My name is Zara. And um, I think specifically at this, or especially at this time, um, people, when they watch something new, old, whatever it is, they're just highly, highly critical about whether or not they like it. And I think it's, it puts a screen up in a way that you can't actually watch what is being shown to you. It's very difficult to just take it as is rather than like almost like enforce your opinions on something without taking the, taking it in, in full. And something that's always been a little bit difficult for me to understand was uh, almost like the obsession with, with all due respect, almost the obsession with like direct and specific representation, how 
how can you break the wall between this is just a human experience, take it as it is, find yourself in it, versus this person does not look exactly like me, does not sound exactly like me, does not have the exact family I have. Like, how do you break that barrier? Because in a way, people are, I think what you can see through, like, anime, for lack of a better term, like, none of the characters are necessarily real. They don't even, like, look necessarily like everyday people. But somehow it is still such, like, a powerful uh, source of media that people attached to and like find themselves in how do you transfer that almost like seamlessness or like um transparency uh like transparency of the human experience through film is that even possible given the fact that it, maybe it is a human so you can't help but project yourself onto it i mean that's such a big question i'm glad you asked it because it gets to I mean, in this country you had people who start the studios who basically put up gates around who was going to be represented and how. That travels around the world. It becomes this, people trying to approximate that, then start to re repeat that. And, and so, for example, the way people of color are regarded around the world comes from the American film business. And not only that, but the way people are regarded as audiences you know, or, or the audience reaction. Well, the American studios say, well, we're not going to make this movie about these people because it's not going to travel overseas, you know, and, and, and forgive me for bringing up a name that's probably anathema right now, but Will Smith makes Bad Boys, and he says, I want to play the Cannes Film Festival. And they tell him, well, yeah, this won't travel overseas. He says, I guarantee you the children of all the people who you want to sell this movie to are listening to my music right now. Mm -hmm. You still don't want to try to sell it overseas. So that, I think it's a great question because it, it becomes about getting back to ownership. You know, and, and, and to your question about creating this thing, you you have the means to do that. Uh, and getting even back to the the whole idea of the way critics frame these things, you know, if you're not bringing in a big enough point of view, you're just going to respond to what you're seeing, which is why people end up saying the Zero Dark Thirty is a great film, um, because they're responding to it in terms of its use of the medium and mechanics and not asking these kind of tougher questions of it. And, and so, I mean, I think we should all be sort of compelled, not impelled, to, to act on our own and to realize that we do have means and you can make things and people respond to them. And just by making it, you can sort of see how to tell the story or write the piece of criticism. Because by doing it, you're going to force yourself to use muscles you didn't know you had and it's going to hurt. It's going to be embarrassing. Like the first time you sing out loud in front of a bunch of people, my voice sounds like that. Or the first time you hear your voice recorded, you just... The act of doing it will prepare you not only to tell the story, but to understand how stories get out. I think that's a, a great note to wrap up on. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. And thank you to our panelists. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.